0: Well hey, thanks for the invitation to speak on the Trinity, it seems like a bit of a, a curveball hospital pass. Um, one of my friends is a physicist, so I've got various friends from university who were cleverer than me and have gone on to do greater things, and he's now the vice principal of Imperial College London. Uh, he's also a Christian, and uh, he told me one day, Andrew, um, doctrine is a bit like uranium, and like, he ought to know, because he understands that. He says it it can be dense, but if you understand it properly, it's very powerful. And I want to talk about the Trinity today, and I hope that will be our experience. We'll have to do a bit of thinking. Uh, it might be a bit dense, but actually it's a very powerful truth. And the doctrine from the Trinity, it doesn't show up uh, in an ivory tower. It's not just people debating how many angels can you fit on a pinhead, and what about the Trinity? It actually comes out of an amazing miracle that Jesus does one Saturday. And that's what we just read about in John chapter 5. And I want to look at the miracle first, and then why Jesus explains the Trinity in explaining what's just happened. Um, I I grew up as an agnostic, uh, an atheist in my late teens. I went to university and became a Christian. And one of the things I'd never realized really about Jesus was that this is all based in history. I know you know that because it's obvious. I'd never figured that out. I thought it was all about just religious ideas. You know, if you wanted to do theology at university, uh, then maybe you come up with these kind of things. I never realized it all started with people who met Jesus one Saturday when something incredible happened. So let's look again at chapter 5. One, sometime later, Jesus went to Jerusalem, the capital city for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, surrounded by five covered colonnades. Um, one of the books I'd love to see written is going to have the title, Egg on the Face. And this is going to be a book of all the times that people have sort of dismissed the Bible and laughed at it and said, that can't be true. And then later on, they discover that it is true and they get egg on their face. So if anyone, it's a historian, wants to write this this should be one of the chapters, the pool at Bethesda. Because for, for many years, scholars said, oh, of course this can't actually have existed. Um, a pool with five covered colonnades. I mean, one, we've never found this pool. The archaeologists don't know where it is. And secondly, there's no way that architecture of that time was into pentagons um, and five covered colonnades. I mean, they just didn't do that kind of uh, design. Maybe square, perhaps, and... Or maybe a hexagon, yes, but five, no. Anyway, um, egg on the face, because then a few years ago some archaeologists were digging and they found a pool and it was near the Sheep gates, and it had um, five colonnades and they were not in the shape of a pentagon, they were in the shape of a letter H, a capital letter H. So there's sort of two pools with a bounds on each side and then across the middle. And they found it, because uh, this is a real place and next to this real place, verse 3, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralysed. One guy who'd been there as an invalid for 38 years. Um, I'm now 48 years old, so, and some of you are younger than that. So uh, this is a very long time to be paralysed. Uh, this is uh, before electric wheelchairs. This is before... Uh, uh, government benefits to help you with your so what does he do he just lies next to this pool hoping for a miracle and so does a lot of other people it's like a sort of hospital Uh, it's a kind of charity place but with this superstition in it so look at verse seven Uh, jesus says do you want to get well verse seven sir the man replied i've got no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Um, Superstition can be really cruel. Things people believe in the name of religion, and they set their hopes on them, and then they just let them down. And here's a particularly cruel superstition. The idea was, the legend was, that if the water stirred up somehow, I'm always thinking the the baths in Bath, you know, to go to the Roman baths, it's like a, I guess that, It also doesn't have pentagonal geometry, but think of a pool and people lying around the outside of it, and then it stirs for some reason, you know, some geothermal thing or some wind just moves the water on the surface. And the superstition is the first one in gets healed. Now, it's just a grotesque image. Imagine a whole load of people who are all paralysed in a race. It's like a kind of macabre, cruel version of the Paralympics. And there, there's a little wind or something, there's a little stirring, and then everyone rushes, dragging themselves, I guess, to the water's edge. And this man's never the first one in. So he's never healed. So he, he stakes everything on this superstition that can't help him. And people still do that, don't they, around the world. They, people make pilgrimage to special places. If only I can get to Lourdes in France, you know, then I'll, there might be some special water there, and I'll get healed, if only I can go to Mecca, if you're Muslim, uh, maybe that, that there I'll have some special experience and God will help me. And the whole thing is a load of rubbish and it's superstitious. And Jesus cuts through the whole thing, verse 8, and he just says, instead of helping the man with the water, he just says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And he does. So it's pretty amazing. And by the way, this is quite a difficult miracle to fake because I'm sure people do fake miracles and there's a whole industry, isn't there, of, of dodgy preachers? And we, we read about one recently in Africa who was exploiting loads of people. Maybe you read about it in the news. These sort of mega churches where they have healings where, you know, I slip one of you 50 quid and say, Do you mind hobbling into Grace Church Bath? And then I'll do a healing and then you dance out. And everyone will be really amazed. They'll all give me a massive amount of money afterwards and then I'll split the difference with you. And say, okay, fine. So we could set up a miracle like that, we could do a fake miracle. You can't really fake a miracle like this, though, can you? 38 years. This isn't somebody he met outside that you slipped 50 quid to. Like, excuse me, do you mind pretending to be paralysed for, like, your entire life? And then in 38 years' time, I'll come along and heal you. And, of course, everyone knows this guy, don't they? So uh, he's going to be a, a common figure. Isn't that the guy by the pool? Isn't that the guy he, he used to beg? And now he, he goes along walking with his mats. it's an amazing miracle in front of eyewitnesses at a verifiable archaeological place but the problem is that Jesus does it on the wrong day of the week he does it on a saturday now as we hear it we think you know the, surely the salient points about this event are an incredible miracle taking place i mean like even if you could give somebody some sort of operation on their faulty joint or something it would take Weeks and weeks, months and months of physio just for the muscles to grow back. But Jesus says, get up, and off he goes, on a Saturday. Because the Jewish teachers know that the Old Testament says in the Ten Commandments that you're not allowed to do any work on a Saturday. Um, six days you should labour and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord our God. On it you shall not do any work. So they know about the Ten Commandments. And unfortunately, they they interpret the Ten Commandments in a pretty sort of crazily strict way. And actually, some Jewish people still still do this. So um, I've been on Israel a couple of times before the current troubles. And if you're a very, very strict uh, Jewish hotel, uh, you don't have um, light switches on Saturdays because turning on the light might count as working. Or you're not allowed to carry something that's above your shoulder because that's, that's working. And they've got this kind of ultra-strict view here, these Pharisees. This man walking along, carrying his mat, that's working. And you think, give the guy a break. He's been paralysed for 38 years. This is literally the first walk he's ever been on. And all you're worried about is the fact that he shouldn't be doing it according to your ultra-strict interpretation of the Old Testament. Give the guy a break. And so Jesus um, gets involved in it. Verse 16, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, on a Saturday, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said, and I want you just to think for a minute, what defense could Jesus give for doing this on a Saturday? And there's actually a whole load of options. And in some of the other episodes in Jesus' life, he gives some of these other answers. So one of the answers is, um, don't be ridiculous, I'm not working. You know, all I did was say to the guy, get up. It was, it's not, I didn't exactly break out in a sweat. He could say that, you know. They don't have such an absurd interpretation of what it means to work. Or he could say, as he says elsewhere, don't, don't you realise that God's law isn't meant to be a straitjacket, it's meant to be a blessing. Um, it, it, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Stop interpreting it in a way that sort of hinders people. A day off is meant to be God's blessing to you, not a sort of strict rule to beat yourself up with. He could say that. Or he could say, as he says elsewhere, you're hypocrites because when your animal gets in trouble on a Saturday, you help it on a Saturday. If you've got an ox or a donkey and it falls into a ditch, you don't wait till Sunday to get it out of the ditch. You get it out of the ditch on a Saturday. Have you got, I don't know if you've got any vets in this, in this church. We've got a vet in our church. And I asked him, Gerald, do you work on Saturday? Yes, I do. The veterinary surgery just like the hospital is open on a Saturday. And Jesus is hypocrites. You help animals out. Why can't you help a human being out? So there's a whole load of different answers he could give. But here in John chapter 5, Jesus gives the most controversial possible answer. Just have a look. Jesus, how come you're doing it on a Saturday? Verse 17. In his defence, Jesus says, my father works on Saturday." And so do I. He's saying, you know, God, God works on Saturday. Have you noticed on Saturday that the world keeps spinning? Just as well. I've got a friend, he's another friend, he's a physicist, and I actually asked him once what would happen if the world did stop spinning. Apparently all the oceans would immediately go to the North and South Pole. Um, anyway, but the world keeps spinning on Saturdays. Gravity keeps working on Saturday, The sun keeps... Starting. God doesn't take Saturdays off. And so Jesus says, so so therefore I don't. Now, just think about this for a moment. There'll be certain rules in Bath, I guess, that are for particularly important people. When I was at university, there was a particular bit of grass that only the head of the college was allowed to walk on. I don't know why, but it was like the master's garden, keep off the grass. Imagine if you walked on the grass as an undergraduate and you get stopped by the um, university um, staff. What do you think you're doing? You go, well, the master walks on the grass And so I do. It's not going to cut it, is it? Or imagine, uh, let's uh, escalate it a bit. You break into Buckingham Palace. You're probably going to get shot by a sniper as you scale over the fence. But imagine you manage to do it and you start, you know, sort of strolling around with the grass. What are you doing? Boy, the king's allowed to, so I'm allowed to. That's the kind of answer Jesus gives. Why are you working on a Saturday? Well, God does. It's good enough for God. It's good enough for me. And then it really kicks off. Look at verse 18. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, I mean, they were upset enough about that, but now he's calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And at this point, Jesus now has to explain the Trinity to them. You see, because they, they've kind of half understood him. They, they've seen him doing something that, frankly, only God can do. None of you, even if you're studying medicine, can walk into the orthopedic ward and just tell somebody, get up, and they walk out. And only God can do this. And Jesus said, well, I, I'm allowed to work on Saturday just like God is. And they, they've misheard him. Because they think Jesus, it sounds to us like you are setting yourself up as a rival to God, and that's blasphemy. There's only one God, uh, and you can't be another God. Are you trying to say that you're God's competitor? You sort of challenging God, saying, oh, I, "I can, whatever God can do, I can do." And Jesus, ah, I need to explain to you the Trinity. And just look at verse 19. I'm going to explain this. So, verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. What's the question? It's not really a question, is it? It's, we want to kill you. Okay, let me give you this answer. (laughs) The answer is, very truly I say to you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he'll show him even greater things than this, so that you'll be amazed. So I want to unpack this a bit more slowly. There's two things Jesus says. Firstly, um, I'm not independent of God because I only do the things that my father does. So I'm not, I'm not sort of setting off on my own. I'm not, it's not like I'm the inheritor of the family business and I've decided to do things a bit differently. You know, so my... My dad used to run the shop in this very traditional way, but now I'm going to bring in AI technology or something. It's not, it's not like I've got my own ideas about how I'll do it. He says, no, no, I respect my father so much that I do exactly what he does. The, the, the son does nothing by himself. He does only what he sees his father doing. So if you're into maths, there must be some mathmotypes at Bath. If you do the sort of Venn diagram circles and you do the circle of all the things that the father does, and the circle of all the things the son does, it's the same circle. That's what Jesus is saying. That there's no little ideas that I have, and I go off on my own. I always, only, copy the father. And you think, okay, well, that's fair enough, but isn't that quite annoying? Like, having a a son going around copying everything that you do, it's like a sort of mini-me thing. And sometimes you see it, and it's quite cute, isn't it, when a little child dresses the same way as their daddy, but if they went through their whole life sort of copying their dad's walk and doing their dad's actions, if I had a son here and he stood up there and started doing the same, I feel like, stop it, mate. You know? So isn't that annoying? No, it's not, actually. Because the next verse, verse 20, 20 the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. So th- here's the relationship. There's a father who loves his son and shows his son everything. There's a son who honours his father and copies it exactly. And the point is this, this is not rivalry. This is not two gods. This is not Jesus in competition with God. This is a father and a son, a father who loves his son, and a son who honours his father. So yeah, it's true that God works on Saturday and I work on Saturday, says Jesus, because the father showed me what to do on Saturday, and I copy him. Exactly. Okay, next question. Well, okay, what sort of things, Jesus, does your Father do that you also do? Just look down at verse uh, 21. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son... So that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son, does not honour the Father He sent certainly... two, him. Two things that Jesus copies from his Father. Firstly, giving life to people. Uh, that's something that only God can do. Um, if you're an atheist, I think this is one of the things that gives you the biggest headache. Where does life come from? In fact, where does the universe come from? And you say, well, it comes from the Big Bang. I say, sure. And what, what made the Big Bang go back? One of the big headaches for a for, for materialist is if the world is only the material universe, what started it? You've got to have a cause outside of the universe to, to get the universe going. And Jesus says, oh yeah, God did that. My father did that. And then what about life? Where does life come from? And what about consciousness? Where does consciousness go? And Jesus says, oh yeah, God did that. But he shared that with me. So just as the father gives life, So the Son gives life. It's quite a big claim, isn't it? I mean, I say, I have the power, says Jesus, to give life to the dead. It's a crazy thing to say, except he just told a man who's been paralysed for 38 years to get up, and he did. So, you know, we're listening now, Jesus. You've done something incredible, and now you're explaining it, and your explanation is the Trinity, Another thing that God does, and only God does, God judges the world. Uh, At the end of time, I know right now all sorts of people judge us and society judges us and maybe the police judges us and maybe our university um, teachers judge us. But on the last day, the person who decides your eternal destiny is God. Uh, He ultimately judges us. We all stand before him and we receive what we deserve. And Jesus said, and my Father has given me that job too. It's like almost like the biggest thing that God does. It's the beginning and the end. God God made the world at the beginning, and he judges the world at the end. And Jesus says, and I do that, because the Father loves me, and he shows me, and I copy him. This is the Trinity. It's it's not a sort of ivory tower doctrine. It's actually about the way the world world is run. Life is made by a father who loves his son so much that he lets his son give life. The world is judged by a father who trusts his son so much that he lets his son do the judging. So on the last day, when we're, we're all standing before the judgment thre- throne of God, who's up there on the bench is Jesus, the judge of the world. Well, Why? Why has God set up the Trinity like this? Why is God the Father sharing everything with God the Son like this? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 23, in order that everyone might honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Uh, it, God the Father, he loves his Son so much he wants everyone to honour him. Let me draw out some practical implications of this. Uh, you cannot be friends with God if you dishonour Jesus. It's not possible. What God most wants in the world is for his son to be honoured. I mean, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? I've got, I've got friends who've got sons, um, and uh, I've got a friend called um, Stuart, and his son's called Eden. And if you get, oh, Stuart, I like you, but I'm afraid I hate Eden, you're not going to get on very well with him. You know, Because Stuart loves Eden so much, he, he wants everyone to... It's kind of obvious, isn't it, that where there's a close bond, you can't... It's why it's always a bit nerve-wracking when uh, one of your friends gets a new girlfriend or boyfriend and you think, what if I don't like them? Because it's pretty difficult to maintain your friendship with one person if you can't get on with the person that they're sharing their life with. Well, it's like that idea, but with bells on. You can't be friends with God if you're not friends with his son. It, It means, basically, you can't be friends with God if you're not going to be a Christian. If you say, oh, I'm into the idea of some kind of higher power, but I'm not really into Jesus, then God is offended by that. He says, but it is my son. I want you to honour my son. Can't you see how great my son is? I've, I've, I've shown him everything. And look at how like me he is. He copies everything that I show him. And you can't be friends with God if you're not friends with Jesus, implication one. Implication two, you can receive the life of God from Jesus. Verse 24, the two things that Jesus does, he gives life and he judges the world. Verse 24, very truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, believes my father, has eternal life and will not be judged that has crossed over from death to life. I think this is one of the most amazing promises in the whole of the Bible, actually. Because here's the thing, judgment day is in the future. It's at the end of time. It's the end of your life, the end of my life. One day, all of humanity will stand before God. And you might think, I wonder what will be the outcome of that day. Um, I had a friend who had a, a court case coming up, a very stressful thing. Um, she um, basically killed somebody while she was behind the wheel of a car. Because she lost concentration and she swerved over the lanes and somebody died. And it, was, it wasn't deliberate, but it was terrifying. And then because of COVID, she had to wait just ages for a court date. And she didn't know what will happen to me. Will I go to prison? Will I, you know, it's, just, it's awful having that hang over you. Even worse, having the final judgment day hanging over you. What will be the outcome on that final day? And Jesus said, well... Let me tell you, God has given me the job of doing the judgment on that day. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to have the decision made now. You can bring the verdicts into now. You can have the judgment day now, a little mini one. And it goes like this. If you hear my words and you believe my father who sent me, then you have eternal life and you don't have to go to judgment. Now, Jesus can only say that because of the Trinity. If, if I told you, oh, don't worry, I'll let you off everything wrong that you've done and you can go to heaven, you go, thanks. Who are you? Some Blake from Greenwich who lives on the zero-degree longitude line, whatever that is. Cheers. I mean, this doesn't have any weight to it, does it? But if I say, I am the son of the Father and God the Father has given to me all of the responsibility to judge the world, just as he gave me all of the power to give people life, by which, by the way, if you want some evidence, look at what happened to this bloke who's been paralysed for 38 years. he has got weight now, hasn't it? Because of the Trinity, Jesus says, if you deal with me, you're dealing with my Father. And he has given me authority to make this offer to you. If anyone hears my words and believes him he sent me, he has eternal life, will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Not two gods... Not Jesus as a rival to his father, but a son who the father is proud of, who he holds up, who he's given authority to make this incredible offer and backed it up with an amazing miracle that happened one Saturday next to a pool that people didn't used to think existed until they found it and got egg on the face that gives this real facts behind it. And it's an offer that Jesus is making to you today. If you hear his words and believe the one he sent him, You have eternal life. You won't be judged. You've crossed over from death to life. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to stop. I think we've got questions or something in a minute. I'm going to pray and then we'll see what happens next. Father, thank you so much for your son who you love. Uh, Father, thank you that you share with him everything that you do and that he wants to honour you so much that he copies exactly everything that you show him. And we thank you, Lord, that within the Trinity you shared with your son the work of giving life to the dead and you've given him the responsibility of judging the world in order that we might honour him. And Father, we thank you for this incredible offer that you are making today or that Jesus is making today on your behalf. That If we listen to him and trust him, we can escape the judgment and receive eternal life. And thank you, Lord, this isn't just a, a wishful thinking kind of stuff but it comes from the guy who proved it by miracle after miracle. Lord, we praise you for your son. We pray that we would honour him and that you would be pleased because you love him so much. For Jesus' sake, amen.